Welcome to Thinking Ahead, your leading edge insights podcast. Each episode reveals the latest insights on today's consumers and offers a sneak peek of tomorrow's marketplace. Stop guessing what's next and start thinking ahead. Welcome, this is Hannah, your host for this episode of Thinking Ahead, a GFK Insights podcast. Today is part one of a two-part episode about how to optimize brand innovations for long-term success with smart in-market testing. With all today's disruptions, FMCG brands, marketers, and retailers need to think ahead by developing compelling innovations today that will come to market months from now. For this first half, I'm joined by GFK's Susan Stacy, Senior Vice President and Consultant. Welcome, Sue. Thanks, Hannah. Also joining us is Neil Heffernan, Executive Vice President of Sales Effectiveness here at GFK. And Neil is going to stick with us for both parts one and part two of the episode. So joining with him on the second half is going to be Fabiola from Ferrero. She's a Senior Market Test Manager. Welcome, Neil. Thanks, Hannah. Before we get into the ins and outs and advantages of in-market testing, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the current state of the world and how it's affected shopping behavior. While retail and hospitality industries saw a big drop in customers because of the COVID-19 pandemic, many FMCG brands have seen huge spikes. How has this affected the brands in the space, and will it continue to change as lockdown policies start to ease? Yes, uh, yeah, that's true, Hannah. We've actually seen a lot of the FMCG categories and brands benefit from the COVID-19 virus. We've actually been tracking sales for a lot of these major categories with our National Shopper Lab, uh, which is uh, made up of loyalty card shoppers uh, from different retailers across the U.S. It, it actually tracks 96 million unique shoppers across 23 retail banners in grocery and drug classes of trade. And what it's allowed us to do is actually observe the impact of the panic buying and pantry loading behavior that started when the national lockdown went into effect, which was in mid-March. And uh, that buying accelerated for about four weeks. And then with that panic buying and pantry loading, we actually um, saw a lot of unprecedented out-of-stock problems. Um, I think everyone experienced that when they went their first few times to the store where a lot of the products that you normally would buy were not available and consumers were having to make choices on other brands that they typically wouldn't have. Regarding the second part of your question, we do expect the elevated buying patterns for many of these categories to continue even as the lockdown policies begin to ease because many of our changed behaviors are going to persist for at least a while. And that's going to be something that uh, I think as consumers, we're going we're gonna to continue to track and, and monitor as well. Another shopping behavior that's increased with the pandemic is the higher preference to buy products on a store's website versus going into the physical store. Is an increase in online grocery shopping going to affect the way that FMCG brands connect with their consumers or their customers in the future now that they're looking at a screen versus the f- physical packaging of a product? Yes, we think that it likely should. Um, We see that the in-store experience does remain a touchstone for consumers, but online has grown steadily amidst the crisis. In our latest Consumer Pulse survey, we saw that while the majority of consumers are still choosing to shop in-store, one-third are now actually buying equally online and in-store. And a large group of those shopping online are actually trying it for the first time. 
Before the pandemic, e-commerce skewed a bit um, to the younger population, but with COVID-19, we see that the boomer generation is one of the fastest growing groups purchasing groceries online, which really has implications for things like what assortment or pack sizes are available. And we think that's a real opportunity to think about innovation for both in-store and online going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So getting into the main question for this, and that is how important is innovation in the growth of a brand and company? And also is the pandemic affecting the way that companies should be thinking about it? Uh, yeah, I'll take the first part uh, for first part of your question. Innovation is absolutely extremely important for growth in uh, the FMCG industry. Last year, a um, study was done by Price Waterhouse Coopers where they interviewed CEOs from top CPG companies like P&G, Coca-Cola, Nestle, and Kellogg's to name a few. And almost every CEO that was interviewed, 97% of them said innovation was a key pillar in their strategic plan to drive growth for the company. I believe if this question was asked 10 years ago or even 10 years from now, we would see similar results because innovation will always be a top priority for growth. Yeah, and then in terms of the second part of your question, Hannah, about um, if the pandemic will be affecting the way companies think about it, um, we you know definitely think that there are several impacts from COVID-19 that uh, represent important considerations for innovation planning. One um, is what Neil was alluding to earlier um, that we call accidental trial, which has really upended brand loyalty in some categories. In a recent survey we did, we um, saw that about 30%, a little over 30% of respondents said they had purchased a brand in the past week that they normally wouldn't have because their preferred brand was out of stock. And one in four of those people said they found brands they actually liked better and will continue to buy them post-crisis. Also, because of the economic impact of the pandemic, uh, we see private label picking up momentum in key categories. The lower prices for private label you know, are certainly appealing to consumers who are feeling cash strapped right now, uh, which is expected and what we saw during the last recession starting back at the end of 2008. And then just overall, the in-store experience is changing so much. Uh, consumers are making fewer trips with bigger baskets right now. And many have this mindset that we think of as like grab and get out, where you're not wanting to spend any more time in the store than you have to and browse and explore um, shelves. Or as we mentioned earlier, some are switching to more or all of their shopping online. So with just all of this dramatic change in the retail landscape, we think the room for error with new innovations has really grown even smaller. Hmm. So with that, with people going in quickly, looking for the you know packaging or the brands that they already know, and the fact that just consumers in general are creatures of habit, is innovation or can innovation be synonymous with risk? Yeah, I think so. I, you'd have to sort of think of it that way. As much as we like to think of it as being synonymous with growth opportunities, there's, there's also risk. Um, we saw in a McKinsey survey that globally business executives say that only 40% of innovations over the last five years have had a positive impact on their business's bottom line. So with 60% not considered to have the necessary benefit to the business, trying to develop and launch innovations that will is certainly a challenge and one that some companies may just sort of want to avoid or not really think about developing an appropriate discipline or approach that could help them mitigate those statistics. Hmm. Well, that is a pretty intimidating statistic to think about. So how can a company develop or adopt an approach that will help mitigate and lessen those chances that innovation will fail? 
Well, I think if a company really wants to truly increase their success rates, then they need to conduct in-market tests prior to national launch to make sure their innovation is going to deliver the expected sales and profit for the company. Unfortunately, we, uh, we often hear a lot of groans from clients because uh, in-market testing to them means um, a lot of money and a long time to do the research. And uh, this is really um, where it's a tug of war with companies to innovate and get products out there that are going to make a difference versus putting products out there that really shouldn't have gone, um, but they really feel they have to get to market first. And uh, it's that tug of war that makes it really difficult for those companies. But uh, if you really adopt this discipline and actually test in market these ideas and only launch the ones that truly are going to benefit the bottom line, you're going to definitely win out long term um, in the from a bottom line perspective, which is what, you know, the the study uh, that McKinsey had done was showing that you know, only 40 percent impact the bottom line. You want to get that above 50 percent and testing would do that. So I think that a couple things to think about, though, is that testing is not, um, you know, the same for every study that comes in a, a lot of different flavors. So uh, if it's a low risk innovation, you can actually do some qualitative like tests, which would uh, mean that we only are going to put it in store for a few weeks and in a few stores. Um, and this is more like a disaster check. It's not going to be required to be in market long term, but it allows us to get some general learning to make a decision. But if the product has a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of risk if we're wrong, then we have to do a quantitative test design because that's going to allow us to get a better read and an accurate estimate of what the volume potential for the idea would be. And to do that, we actually have two different approaches that we would do for a quantitative. It's either a controlled store test, which is uh, done with one retailer in one market, or we would do a controlled market test, which would actually include multiple retailers across multiple channels. So it could be Walmart, Walgreens and 7-Eleven, uh, for instance, as an example. And we would actually execute the entire uh, marketing plan that you would expect to, to do nationally. So we would reflect what the national strategy would look like. That would allow us then to look at the impact of that product at a national level, but in a test market and forecast sales for that product. There's certainly a lot of different types of testing and options that you can look into. And even more so when you think of all the digital capabilities we have now. So what is the advantage of in-market testing versus virtual market testing? Uh, I think probably the simplest way to think about in-market testing is that what we're doing is testing your innovation with real people who are spending real dollars in real stores. So that makes it really different from virtual online testing or a simulated test market where you're using an innovation concept and survey data to estimate the impact of the test stimulus, whatever that test treatment is. Um, And it's based on purchase intent versus actual purchases. So especially when there are a lot of unknowns, uh, as Neil was mentioning, or the business opportunity requires a large investment, uh, we really believe that an in-market test is going to be the best solution to consider. Yeah, actually, Sue, I actually have a really good example of a client who has had great success utilizing in-market testing. The company is uh, Ferrero. It's the Italian chocolate manufacturer. 
they actually have adopted in-market testing as a best practice, and it's proven to be extremely successful for them all over the world. Uh, 90% of their innovations that they launch via the in-market testing model are actually still in market two years after the launch, which that is a, a very successful number at 90%. When we compare that to the market average, um, they're actually four and a half times more successful than the market average because the market average is only 20% of, of innovations or new product innovations are actually still on the shelf after two years of introduction. Ferrero has had some really great success, and I'm really excited to hear more about that next week for the part two, uh, when we have Fabiola on to talk a little bit more about that. So shifting gears, what kind of test results would show red flags, let's say for a new product? Uh, For a new product, we look at actually several metrics to determine success or failure. First, we look at the overall sales velocity. So this would be units, per store per week selling. This velocity number allows us then to conduct a SKU ranking to see how the new items compare to the competition. So if the new item ranks in the bottom 50% of the category, this is a red flag because uh, retailers are not looking to bring new products into the store unless they're actually performing uh, above that 50% threshold because they're looking for products that are going to drive category growth for them. Um, so that that's uh, red flag number one on the point of sale data. Uh, in addition to looking at that point of sale data, though, we, de- we also want to tap into a retailer's loyalty card data to analyze the trial and repeat rates for the new product versus the goals we've set for success. So if we're uh, tracking trial and repeat, if the trial is low versus our goal, Uh, That's a red flag, and it's either we have an awareness issue or the product positioning is is off for the brand. If our uh, repeat rates are low versus goal, then we have a product quality issue. And uh, that's where um, integrating those data sets allow us to, to look at it two different ways. Do either of you have any good tips on how a brand can do their own homework and ensure for a successful product for both testing and for launch? Yeah, I think that there are definitely some important things you can do sort of early on when you're thinking of ideas um, that you may want to pursue. I think looking at what other products have done, you know, really studying the specific paths that other products have taken both in and outside your category to learn from them. And in doing that, you know, you really want to look at both what has worked, so study success, but also look at what has not worked. There can often be as much or more to learn from um, failures. And some of those failures can be in places of really extending yourself too far beyond your area of expertise. We can get great ideas about, oh, we've been a successful brand. How about we go over here with it? And over here may not really make sense or resonate with consumers because you're extending too far. Um, making sure your innovation is better and different from competitive offerings would be important. Um, you know, I think there's times where Me Too products, you know, coming in second or third um, into a new newish category or segment can work, but it may not meet the thresholds that your company has for performance expectations. So you'll want to really consider that. And then I think um, the biggest one is, will the innovation actually matter to your consumers? We often can get caught up with a new idea that we think is interesting and is really great, but that doesn't matter so much if your consumers don't think so. And I think that's what extends us into the testing realm because sometimes earlier research we might do, which is certainly important and where we always wanna start, but sometimes the more qualitative research focus groups might show that something has promise, 
Um, but actually getting it out into those real stores with real people is going to really show you if it resonates and if people are actually willing to make a purchase um, and not only the first purchase, but come back and continue to repeat on your business. So that's the best way to tell uh, how if the innovation is going to really matter and ensure a successful launch for you. There's clearly a lot to keep in mind, and I'm starting to hear a little bit of a balance in, you know, the risks and the rewards. So, you know, where can a brand go wrong? And at what, what point could a brand be innovating too much? Is that possible? Uh, I think so. I mean, with failure rates greater than 80%, as I had just shared with you, uh, I think companies are innovating too fast. While innovation is certainly important, and as I mentioned earlier, it has to be done uh, for category growth, but it has to be done with more rigor. If companies adopt an in-market testing model like Ferrero has, it's going to help them weed out the failures on a small scale, which will have a positive impact to their bottom line. So taking this into the real world, because I can think of a few times when I've seen a product and I've been confused because they've changed their fonts, their images, their colors. Uh, how can a brand avoid consumer confusion and backlash due to a dramatic package change they decided to make? Yeah, that's an important one for sure, because we see um, a lot of sort of missteps being made there. Uh, it can be really tempting to make a change to your brand's packaging. Um, you know, we may want to try to update a brand's image by changing packaging colors or the design or even the form of that package um, from going to something like from a can to a different form like a septic or a pouch. And while a lot of those can certainly be positive, um, we really encourage caution. And in fact, there's was a Quirks article published that indicated package changes are twice as likely to hurt a brand sales as they are to help. Um, and someone said this earlier that we tend to be creatures of habit. And I'm sure most everyone listening today has a good story about trying to find their favorite brand while they're out shopping and not being able to locate it on the shelf because it didn't look the same. And we might have been looking right at it without realizing it. We really get very attached to the look and feel of the products we routinely buy, right? So we can just kind of go in and grab and go. And so we think that right now, because of that sort of grab and go frame of mind, that's even more um, present right now, that it could be really risky to make a package change that isn't well vetted with your consumers. So there are some things we've um, seen from over the years with package testing that we've um, kind of assembled some little principles to think about to um, have in mind if you're considering a package change, um, especially if that new package requires a behavior change for consumers and those examples of going to like a new form for your product. Um, really thinking about including market-wide support to educate your consumers and build awareness would be critical but also considering communication points right on the package and at the shelf to educate your consumers as to the benefits of your new packaging, especially if that media is going to be limited. And you may consider that the products that require that major shift in behavior, you might be better off having them um, extended from the brand or really even adopt a new brand name so that you avoid alienating your existing shopper base. And lastly, we found that in-store shopper intercept work during a test can be really helpful to understand more about the why behind the sales results. We've talked to shoppers uh, in the store when there's a new package on shelf so that we can understand from them how and why they're interacting with it or not. Like, are they not seeing it? What do they like about the new package? What did they not like? So that can really help you also if your sales results are underperforming, you might learn some things that you could do differently with it to try launching it again later on.
I just wanted to jump in and just say, I, as Sue had talked about it, I, I just had a recent experience that's uh, exactly what she was talking about. Um, over the Memorial Day weekend, I actually went out to do some shopping for uh, the family cookout, and I went to, to buy my favorite mustard, which is the golden spicy brown mustard, and I couldn't find it on the shelf. And uh, I was literally looking at the shelf for three, four minutes, it seemed like. And uh, luckily, there was a store associate in the aisle. So I asked them, you know, if they had stopped carrying it. And uh, they said, no, it's right here. And it was actually right in front of my nose. Um, I was looking right at it. And um, what had happened was they had did a dramatic change in the packaging. Um, the mustard is typically in a clear plastic bottle. And you can see the color of the mustard. Uh, but what they had done is they went to an all-black bottle, um, so it didn't look anything like the current packaging was. So it was very confusing. And, um, you know, if I wasn't able to reach that associate, I think ultimately I would have bought a competitive brand and, um, you know, Golden's would have lost that purchase from me. And uh, that's a big concern um, if you think about changing your package. You want to make sure that confusion's not gonna can be there that could ultimately hurt you versus benefit you from making that change. I think that anyone listening can probably think of a similar situation to that. I know I can. Uh, so that actually made me think of another thing, which is, you know, you're standing there looking in the aisle and what about the retail environment? Should brands be testing in-store environment as well as the product itself? Oh, oh absolutely. I think most people think of innovation is about big new product ideas or radical package changes. But innovation really spans a number of retail variables, and many of them carry at least some risk in terms of the amount of investment required. So it's important to test these in-store retail innovations in advance as well. And um, you know, examples of in-store retail innovation is anything from different uh, interactive displays that could be in-store, changes to shelving, like a gravity feed, solution or adding special signage or fixtures to make the category easier to navigate or shop to even uh, more advanced stuff like adding video screens to advertise products or other messages in different locations in the store so all of these are uh, worthwhile considering um, you know testing on a small scale to make sure shoppers are going to respond to that prior to launching more broadly and I'm sure we can hear more about that in part two, and we can hear what Ferrero did in those terms. So here on Thinking Ahead, we're always looking to see what's next. I have one last question for you guys, and that is, thinking ahead, what will be the long-term effects of COVID-19 on brand innovation and in-market testing? Well, for starters, I think you know, Innovation Engine needs to definitely stay in gear and brands and retailers need to be ready for a variety of innovations for life on the other side of the crisis. You know, innovations that focus on um, comfort and appeal to cooking at home and family meals will, I think, continue to be popular because I think the behaviors that a lot of us have created over the last few months um, you know, in lockdown um, will have longstanding impacts. Uh, also, you know, buying from trusted brand names will be very important. As we move into the economic impact of COVID, gaining trial for new brands is really hard during an economic downturn because cash-strapped shoppers tend to continue to buy brands they trust versus risking money on products they're not familiar with. 
I agree, Neil. Uh, also, you know, I think in these unsettled times, we really believe it's important to think about what is wise innovation and ensure you are mitigating the different risks that might be present now. We know that the innovation planning process takes many months and, you know, you really want to ensure that your um, precious marketing dollars are spent on optimized offerings. So working within today's unknowns, innovation may be even riskier than ever before. So we'd recommend that you are able to find a way to make the most of your schedules and budgets to keep that innovation process going, but also really look at um, how risky your innovation ideas might be and consider an in-market test like you maybe haven't in the past so that you can thoroughly evaluate those innovations with your consumers and ensure success going forward. That's some great takeaways. Thank you both so much for joining me on part one of this episode on Thinking Ahead. Uh, If you are listening and you'd like a more detailed look at what we've been talking about, you can click the links in the description. Neil and Sue recently presented a webinar on in-market testing with some great visuals to extend on what we've discussed here. Also, make sure to subscribe for part two of this episode when next week we have Fabiola on. She is a senior market test manager at Ferrero, and she's going to be joining us to share a little bit about how in-market testing has helped the brand succeed. Thank you again, Neil and Sue. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Thinking Ahead. For more information on today's topic, click the link in the description. We'll see you next time so you can keep thinking ahead.